Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I want us this morning, God being our helper, to return once more to the introduction to the letter to the Hebrews. The introduction is uh, such a sublime passage that under the blessing of God, we could stay here for a long time. But I realized this morning that despite my personality inclination to try to be exhaustive, there's no way to exhaust uh, any passage in God's Word, much less these first few verses in Hebrews. But it is tremendously rich, and I commend it to your meditation and study as uh, you take some of the thoughts that I've tried to share with you and develop them even further. Last week we discovered that revelation, like redemption, is a finished work. We know Jesus finished the work of salvation on the cross, but he also finished God's revelation when he came into this world. Jesus is the last prophet. God is not still revealing new truth. He has told us everything that he intends to tell us in this world, and it is now complete and inscripturated in the 66 books of the Bible. Scripture is not an evolving and living document. I was reading this past week a news article about a megachurch in Franklin, Tennessee, that identifies as a progressive Christian church. They espouse critical race theory and intersectionality, same-sex marriage, and they've been in the news for the last uh, couple of years because of their stance, which is contrary to what we would call traditional Christianity. And just this week, they've revealed that they no longer hold the Bible to be the infallible, inerrant Word of God. That doesn't come as much of a surprise, seeing that they are interested in accommodating the spirit of the age. Instead, they said the Bible is a living, dynamic product of community. My friends, may I say God is not still revealing new truth and the Bible doesn't need to be updated and changed. God has spoken, says our text, once and for all, fully and finally, by his Son. And this important passage affirms that God's revelation is complete and sufficient. He's not still revealing truth by prophets. Mystical experiences like dreams and visions, for he has now spoken ultimately by his son. And by the way, this principle disqualifies every religion whose founder claims to have encountered an angel that told him things that either need to be added to the Bible or that need to replace the Bible. From Islam to Mormonism to Scientology and the New Age movement, this passage tells us God has spoken once and for all by his son, Jesus Christ. Now today, we learn that the son that is mentioned in verse 2, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, is not only the means of God's final revelation to man, but he is also the subject and the theme of it. The sum and substance of special revelation is the supremacy and the glory of Jesus Christ. And as this passage is going to show us, this is a diamond with many facets. Just as a jeweler might take a gem and show the different colors that come as he turns it in the light, we can take this passage, my beloved, and show the many different hues 
of the glory of Christ, and each one is going to be spectacular. Notice the first thing he says about his son is he is the covenant heir of all things. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, verse 2 says, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Now this passage reminds me of the words of Psalm 2, where the psalmist in this messianic psalm says in verse 8, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Here you have an intra-Trinitarian conversation between the Father and the Son, and the context is the covenant of redemption before time began. You know, don't you, my friend, that before the world began, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit met in covenant and formed an agreement that would finally result in the rescue or the salvation of all that were loved by God. It's called the everlasting covenant. You see, theology doesn't start in the Garden of Eden. You have to go back before the Garden of Eden to understand the truth. You have to go back before the foundation of the world. Look at your concordance sometime and consider all of the passages that speak of things that happened before the world began. It's a wonderful study. Ephesians 1.4, according as he hath chosen us in Christ before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9, God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8 speak of the Lamb's book of life, and it says people had their names written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And it was in this covenant that Jesus Christ, the second person in the Trinity, agreed to assume a role which would put him under orders, which would put him under obligation to fulfill an assignment. Jesus stood in our place in the council halls of eternity past, and when God the Father and God the Spirit said, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? The second person of the Trinity stood up and said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah 48, 16 says, The Lord God in his Spirit hath sent me. Later, he was dispatched in the fullness of time into this world. But it was because he had volunteered before time began to be the sin bearer, to be the mediator, to be the one who would stand between sinful humanity and a holy God and would bring reconciliation, lay his hand upon them both, and bring harmony where there was disharmony and dispeace. Jesus Christ, in the covenant, assumed a role of mediator. And it's in that light that our text says, God has appointed his son to be the heir of all things. I want to say that anytime you read terminology in the Bible that says anything was appointed to Jesus or given to Jesus or committed to the son, that kind of language has to be interpreted in terms of his covenant office as mediator, not in terms of his person or his essence. What I'm saying is, Jesus the Son is God of very God. He is truly God from all eternity past. And as God, the Son is co-equal and co-essential with the Father. That means whatever the Father has, He has. How could you give anything to someone that has it all? Jesus Christ as God is the owner of the universe. So in what sense can it be said that anything was given to him or that he was appointed heir 
of all things, only in the sense of the role as mediator that he assumed, not in terms of his essential person as God. You see, in the covenant, Jesus assumed a subordinate role. Let me approach the question like this. How do you reconcile these two verses, John 10.30 and John 14.28? John 10.30 says, I and my Father are one. That speaks of his co-equality with the Father, right? I and my Father, Jesus the Son says, are one. How do you reconcile that with John 14.28 where he says, my Father is greater than I? You may know that there are religious folks around who will knock on your door with literature who use John 14, 28 to teach that Jesus was a lesser God than the Father. Because how could he say my Father's greater than I if he is truly God? So he is certainly divine. He's uh, the highest form of angel, but yet he is a little bit lower than God. I'm telling you, dear friends, in his essence, he's one with the Father. But in the role he assumed to be subordinate as the mediator in the covenant, you see, he put himself as a man under orders, if I can say it like that. He assumed an assignment to be the sin bearer, to be the go-between, and that necessarily put him in a subservient position. We answer that question, how do you reconcile those two verses? You reconcile them in terms of the mediatorial role that he assumed in the everlasting covenant not in his essential divine person. Let me just give you several verses that speak of things given to the Son. Daniel 7, 14. I saw in the night visions, says Daniel, and one like the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days in the clouds of heaven. So here is the ascension of Christ. Daniel sees it as it were prophetically before it happened. And there was given to him a kingdom and power and dominion that every nation, language, and people should serve him you see, there was given something to him because he had completed the assignment that he came to this earth to complete. Here's another verse, Matthew 28, 18. Very familiar verse. All power is given unto me. Now as God, he never had anything given to him. As God himself, he didn't need anything given to him. But you see, in completion of the assignment, the task that he adopted in the everlasting covenant, the Father promised to put him in charge may I speak in such mundane terms the father put him in charge of controlling the family business once he went back to heaven John 5 27 he says for the father judgeth no man for he hath committed all judgment so we've seen that there was given to him a kingdom all powers given to me there was committed to him all judgment and authority verse 27 says God has given him authority to execute judgment. Anytime you read language like this, that he was appointed heir, that he was given authority, that he was committed a kingdom, that language has to be interpreted in terms of the covenant role that Jesus Christ assumed on your behalf and mine as our representative before time began, not in terms of his essential divine person. Here's a final mediatorial event that will ever take place, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When Jesus comes again, he says, then cometh the end. Now, has this verse ever perplexed you? Listen to this. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom. Now, there are some religious groups that say that Jesus is going to bring the kingdom down to this earth, and we're going to reign a thousand years on the earth in a utopian existence. But this verse doesn't say he's bringing it down. It says he's going to deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, 
And it says he's going to put down all rule and authority under his feet. Watch this. For he must reign until the last enemy, which is death, is put under his feet. Then the Son himself shall be subject to the Father, that God may be all in all. In other words, my friends, the roles, the official capacities will be fulfilled. And then God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will be all in all. You see, that language has to be interpreted again in terms of the everlasting covenant and his role as mediator. So these verses that I'm talking about, when we're talking about Christ as the covenant heir of all things, he's appointed heir of all things, do not refer to the fact that Jesus is any less God than the Father, but that he voluntarily took on this subservient role. And that's how we understand passages like John 6.38 where he says, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. You see, he's a man under orders. John 12.49 when he says, The words that I speak are not mine, but him that sent me. For the Father gave me commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. You see, that doesn't negate the fact that he's one with God, but it means that he assumed this subordinate role. One more verse, John 17, verse 4. Father, restore unto me the glory that I had with thee before the world was, for I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Once he had finished his assignment, God the Father highly exalted him and gave him a name, which is above every name. That is, he invested him with all power, authority, and regal glory. So the first facet on this diamond, as we turn it in the light of special revelation in Scripture this morning, is that Jesus is glorious because he's the covenant heir of all things. And my beloved, the Bible tells us that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What he has by inheritance, you also have by the marvelous grace of God. Somebody says, when we get to heaven, we'll be angels. No. Verse 4 in Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. My friends, by inheritance, Jesus Christ has been given a name which is above every name, and you and I as joint heirs with Christ are going to be in a higher position than even the angels when we get to heaven. Isn't that glorious? Not only is Jesus the covenant heir, notice let's turn the diamond again. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. The Son, who is the revealer of God, is also the creator of the universe. And verse 3 goes on to say, he's also the upholder. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the creator and the sustainer. He both made it and he maintains it. Now, interestingly, when it says that he made the worlds, the word worlds in this verse does not mean the physical creation, but it means the ages. The Greek word is not cosmos, but aeonios, which means the ages of time. It, that is the concept behind the physical reality. You know, Jesus Christ not only created the trees and the flowers, and the rocks, and human beings, and what we know as space, time, and matter. But Jesus Christ made the concept behind the reality, and this is far beyond what I can even begin to imagine, but how do all of these things work? What is their purpose? He's the creator of the worlds, of the ages. Jesus Christ is the source, the origin. He initiated reality as far as we know it. 
John 1.1 1, 1 is a verse that probably you've heard many times if you've attended Primitive Baptist churches for very long. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word that He goes on to tell us in John chapter 1 is the Son, is said in that verse to be the Creator of all things by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus, the one who died on the cross for you, is the one who made the universe. Isn't it amazing? Sometimes I'll go out and look at the starry sky. Last night was a, though it was mighty cold, it was a brilliant, beautiful starlit night. And as I looked at the stars, I thought, my Savior made that star. My Savior made that star. And he made the trees around me, and he made the vast expanse of the universe, both on a macro and a micro level. Everything that I can see with my natural eye and everything that is beyond my sight that I can't see, a little amoeba in a drop of water, and even things that are beyond our ability to conceive of. In this physical creation, Jesus Christ is the maker of it all. How glorious he must be. Colossians chapter 1 tells us this in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. That word firstborn means he's the source or the origin. It doesn't mean that he's the first created being. For to be a creator, you have to be prior to the thing that you create. Is that true? If you're a creator, you have to be prior to the thing you create. I know technically we don't create anything, you know. I mean, to create means to make something out of nothing. And we always use raw materials to make whatever we're going to make. If you're going to build a house, you use lumber from trees or steel from steel mills that came from the various minerals that the earth provides. You know, we always use raw materials in order to fabricate something. But let's just use the word in a generic sense. If you're going to create a book, Let's say you're going to write a book. You say, I'm going to make this book. I'm going to write the words, have it published. I've created this book. You must necessarily exist before the book. The creator stands apart and independent of the thing that he makes. Let's say you're going to create a dress. You find a pattern, you get some material, and you begin to build this dress, and you say, I made that. But you see, you existed before the dress. The creator is necessarily prior to and independent of the thing that he creates. If Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe, that means he's not a part of creation. He existed prior to it, right? So he cannot be the first creation by whom all the other creatures were made, but Jesus is the source or the origin. The word firstborn in Colossians 1.15 means literally that he's the one who made it all. For by him were all things created, he says, that are in the heaven, that are in the earth, visible and invisible. That tells us that reality is not limited to what you can see with your eyes. Angels are real. Spirits are real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. There's reality beyond the five, what we can perceive with the five senses. Both visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. That is, God the Father designed to create the universe as a love gift to his Son. They were created for him, and they exist for his glory. And he is before all things. There it is. 
He's prior to, he's previous to all things. That is, there's only one uncreated essence or person in this universe, and it's God. Did you know something has to be eternal? Even the Darwinist that says that everything we see around us came as a result of a big bang, that two meteors collided. My question is, where did the meteors come from? And they say, well, they've always been. Matter is eternal. That's called materialism. The idea that matter is eternal, that it's always been here. I'm telling you, dear friends, the life, the ingenuity, the precision, the fine-tuning we see in the universe around us didn't come from two rocks hitting together. You can bang two rocks together until you're blue in the face and you're not going to create life. You say, well, a, a lightning bolt struck those two rocks when they banged together. There was an influx of electricity. Well, where did the lightning bolt derive? You see, dear friends, something has to be eternal. Had you rather believe that you came from an inanimate rock, that all life came from non-life, or believe that God is eternal, he's the only uncreated creator that there's ever been. He's the first great cause and the last great end of all things, you see. God didn't have a beginning. You ask today, preacher, where did God come from? Well, he's always been. And I know we can't wrap our minds around that because we learn by using what we're familiar with to compare it to things that we don't know yet. And we don't have any point of reference by which to fathom this ultimate reality. But I'm telling you, dear friends, that God is without beginning and without ending from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. And he's the source of all that exists. And Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. That's part of his glory. And not only is he prior to and independent of his creation, he is the one who sustains it, maintains it. By him, says Colossians 1, all things consist. Now, is there a difference in the word exist and the word consist? Yes, there is. By him, all things exist. He's the creator. But they also consist. That is, they're held together. They're held up. Psalm 75, 3 says, The earth and the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. That is, the psalmist says, It looks like the world around me is crumbling. But he says, But God bears up the pillars of it. He's the sustainer. If he were to withdraw his hand for even a, a millisecond, what would happen to the world as we know it? It would disintegrate. Every molecule, every atom is held together by the fact that the creator who made it still rules over it. He upholds all things by the word of his power. That same word that spoke the universe into existence. And what power must that have been when he said, let there be and suddenly there was out of nothing. That by the same word they are kept in store, reserved unto fire and judgment of the last day. That same word upholds it all. Jesus Christ rules the world with truth and grace and with hands-on management. He's the creator and the sustainer of this universe. Now we come to the phrase in our text that I really want to get to this morning and um, it's something that I really tremble to think about trying to explain. For so many times I've tried to speak about the glory of God, the glory of Christ in 40 years of gospel ministry. And I feel every time that I fall far short, and I do. I just 
feel at a loss to describe these concepts, but this is the most sublime, the most magnificent idea that our minds could ever entertain. Notice the next phrase, who being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Let's turn the diamond once more. As the light of divine revelation shines upon this precious gem that the one through whom God has given his final revelation is the creator. The one through whom God has given his final revelation is the covenant mediator who will inherit as a result of finishing the work that he was assigned to do. He will be put in charge of all things. We learn this, the one, my friends, that God speaks to us fully and finally by is God of very God. He is the brightness or the radiance of God's glory. Now that word brightness does not mean reflection. I don't know if you've ever seen an International Standard Version Bible, ISV. There's so many brands out there, NIV and RSV and ESV and NASV and I like the old KJV personally. But uh, the International Standard Version says that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory. There's a great difference between a reflection and a radiance. The moon is a reflection of the light of the sun, right? But Jesus is more than the moon. He is the sun, capital S-U-N, of righteousness, according to Malachi 4.2. What I'm saying is Jesus is not just God-like. He is the very outshining of the sun. He is the brightness, the effulgence, the emanation, the outshining, not the reflection, but the radiance of God's glory. Now let's ask the question, what is glory? If I were to ask you today, define glory, what would you say? Somebody says, well, it's the summation of all of God's attributes. You're on the right track. That's right. Glory is a composite attribute in the Bible that considers under its umbrella all of the other attributes combined. Everything that God is makes him glorious. But if I were to ask you, what is glory? How would you define it? Would you listen briefly to how Ezekiel defined it? I say briefly. This is one of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel, while he's in... Babylon, by the river Kibar, gets a vision that God gave him. Here's a country preacher out by a river, and God gives him this amazing vision. And I want you to listen to this, and you tell me if you understand it. It is a phenomenal. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel says, Now it came to pass the thirteenth year in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. I'm not going to take time to read this whole chapter, but just listen to a little bit of it. As I looked and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north. Now try to get the picture of this. He sees this vision, a whirlwind, tornado, comes out of the north. And a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself and a brightness was about it. Out of the midst thereof, he says, there was the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Also in the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. So right out of this tornadic, tornadic fire, he sees four winged creatures that are alive, four living creatures. And he said they all had the appearance of a man. 
Their feet were straight feet. That is, they didn't come down and then go out into a foot. That is, they were like the foot of a calf. Straight feet with a, like a hoof on the bottom. No foot at a 90 degree angle. So their feet were straight feet. The sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. They sparkled like the color of burnished brass. They had the hands of a man under the wings. You say, Preacher, what is this talking about? I haven't the faintest idea. I've never seen anything like this. They had wings on their four sides. They four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined to one another. They turned not when they went. They went everyone straight forward. They didn't pivot. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. So whichever perspective you're looking at is going to show what side, what feature you're seeing. Thus were their faces, their wings were stretched upward, two wings were joined one to another, two, with two they covered their bodies, and they went straight forward where the Spirit went, they went, they turned not as they went. Then he tells how that while the living creatures were going and moving, behold, he said, I saw a wheel in the midst of a wheel. Now when it says a wheel in the midst of a wheel, understand he's not talking about a little circle inside of a larger circle. It's not concentric, but it's a gyroscope in which you would have a complete circle right here and a complete circle. You've seen a gyroscope which can roll this direction, or this direction or that direction. A wheel in the midst of a wheel, and he says, they four had one likeness, and he says, when they went upon their four sides, they turned not whither they went. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful. Their rings were full of eyes before them and behind. And he says, when the creatures went, the wheels went. And when the wheels were lifted up, the creatures were lifted up. You say, Brother Mike, was Ezekiel out of his mind? No, he was seeing something that is unworldly, out of this world. And he's trying to describe it in language we can understand. And you say, what does it all mean? The only explanation I have for you is verse 28. As he sees God above it and the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds around the throne of God, he says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Whatever he saw was stupendous. It was breathtaking. It was mind-boggling. It was glorious. You ever seen a castle and a big table for a king or a queen? You've seen pictures, no doubt, where the food is prolific and the people are dressed to the nines. You know, everybody is in their best attire and there is great formality and there are trumpets playing and there is royalty and regality in the air. And you say, this is the glory of kings. I'm telling you, my friends, all of that is Mickey Mouse and Lilliputian compared to the glory of God. You say, Brother Mike, is this real what I'm reading in Ezekiel chapter 1? I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if there are actually creatures like this. Have you ever considered the variety of creatures God has made in nature? In the bottom of the sea, there are colors and textures and shapes and sizes of animals, marine life, even in nature. There is such a variety and so much amazing precision and, and diversity and all of creation, all an expression of the wisdom of God. I'm telling you, my beloved, it wouldn't surprise me if heaven is not at least as exciting as this world is. 
you could spend a lifetime and still not understand everything there is to understand about this world. I know a couple of guys who've spent their life as peanut scientists. They are PhDs studying peanuts. And they, they will tell you, there is more to the peanut than we will ever be able to understand. If that's true, my friends, how could we ever exhaust it all or be comprehensive in our knowledge of it? This is what glory is. It's something mind-boggling. It's something breathtaking. It's something that you and I can't even begin to scratch the surface of. Okay, so what is God's glory? You say, I don't know. Apparently, it's something out of this world. Let's get a little more specific. The word glory in the Old Testament comes from the root Hebrew word kabod. Do you remember the woman who named her child Ichabod? Ichabod? That's the root of that word, kabod. Ichabod means the glory has departed. What a terrible name to give to your baby. Ichabod, the glory has departed. That is, our best days are behind us. Don't ever name your child Ichabod. Kabod, the word kabod means heavy. Now, I remember growing up in the days of the flower child. Some of you remember the 60s, the flower child. And I remember one of their expressions that they would use when something was really mind-blowing. They would say, heavy, man, heavy. The word glory means weighty, something heavy. It's not something light and airy and superficial, but this is something with substance and significance and weight. By the way, Paul plays on that definition under divine inspiration in 2 Corinthians 4.17 when he says our light afflictions. You say, my afflictions are heavy, Brother Mike. My physical infirmities, my burdens, they are heavy. Paul says they are light when compared to the eternal weight of glory. That's heavy, my friends. That's substantive. That's significant compared to what we go through in this world. Okay, so what is glory? It's something mind-boggling. It's mind-blowing. Glory. It's something heavy. Let's take it one step further. In the Bible, glory is compared to a cloud. What is God's glory? It's like a settling fog or cloud that is so thick and dense that you can't see outside of it. Twice at least in the Old Testament, we find that the glory of God descended upon the tabernacle and later Solomon's temple in the form of a cloud that was so thick that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. In other words, God's presence was so pervasive and apparent that man had to sit down, that the preacher had to check out. He said, I, this isn't the time for me to preach. You know, I sort of had an experience like that one time. In my early ministry, I was preaching the meeting at Trail Branch Primitive Baptist Church in Cochrane, Georgia, one summer. And as I stood up to preach, I announced my subject. I said, I want to try to speak tonight on the wrath of God. And I kid you not, at that very moment, as soon as the words exited my mouth, the wrath of God, a thunderbolt, a lightning strike, hit a tree right outside the sanctuary, right outside the church building. If you know those churches in Georgia, they have... You know, you can see through the windows, and everybody saw it. It was so bright, so loud, it cracked. Some of the sisters, you know, verbally yelped, and, uh, you know, it scared them, and everybody turned and looked. 
If I would have just closed the sermon and sat down right then, <laughs> I would have been better off. I ended up doing a very poor job trying to preach on that subject. You see, that demonstration was much more impressive than the preacher talk. When God's glory came like a cloud in the days of Moses, Exodus chapter 40, and in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, it says the glory of God like a cloud descended upon the tabernacle and later the temple. And it was so great that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the glory of God in the place. What is God's glory? It's something heavy, something mind-boggling. It's like a thick cloud. And when most of us think of glory, we think of what? A bright, shining light, right? The Jews had a word for it. The rabbis coined the term Shekinah to speak of the glory of God. The word Shekinah comes from a word that means to dwell or to settle. And they spoke of the Shekinah glory of God as the divine presence of God that had come to dwell and to settle with the people. And there was a great light that was emitted. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, we read, It came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony, the law, in his hand. When he came down from the mountain, Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone. His face reflected the light he'd seen for 40 days in the mountain while he talked with God. And when Aaron and the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come nigh unto him. That's glory. That's glory. It's a bright shining light. In uh, Luke chapter 2 verse 9, when the shepherds were watching over their flocks by night, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone. What shines? A light does. Shone round about them and they were sore afraid. That's when he announced the birth of Jesus. In Acts chapter 22 verse 11, Saul of Tarsus saw the glory of heaven. He said, I saw a light brighter than the noonday sun. And it blinded him, you may remember, for a few days. By far, though, the greatest metaphor to describe the glory of God is not a cloud or a light, but it's the face. The face. Have you ever been to a wedding? It's a glorious event, isn't it? I mean, they have the white tablecloths and they have the cake that is just impressive and they have the decorations and the fancy music and it's such a wonderful, it's, we dress in our finest to go, don't we? We don't wear a t-shirt and jeans, we put on our finest clothes. A wedding is a place of glory, but the greatest glory at the wedding is not the decoration, the accoutrements, the adornments, the greatest glory of the wedding is when the veil is removed and the revelation of the wife, the bride is seen, right? The glory of the face. We don't sing, here comes the groom. <laughs> we sing, here comes the bride, and we want to see her face. When Moses said, Lord, show me thy glory, how did God respond? No man can look upon my what? My face. The glory of God is in his face. It's a radiant face. We know that nature reveals God's glory. We quoted the verse last week, Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Jesus said that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these lilies in the field. There's glory. The glory of God is revealed in nature. The law revealed God's glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 says, 
the glory of the law is surpassed by the glory of the gospel, but still it had glory. But my friends, may I say, the ultimate revelation or outshining or radiance of God's glory does not come from nature and it's not seen in the law, but the ultimate radiance of God's glory was seen in the incarnation of Jesus as the prophet predicted in Isaiah 40 verse 5 when he says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. When the Messiah is born, that's when God's glory will be revealed. John 1.14 says, The Word that created was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And our text says, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person. He is God expressed. He's God of very God. He's God told out. One day, my beloved, you and I will see God's glory without the veil that now obscures His magnificence. Isn't that right? Have you ever seen the splendor? You couldn't and I couldn't take it. No man can look upon God and live. We couldn't bear it. Our bodies, our eyes, we couldn't sustain the gaze, my beloved. Just as I can't look at the sun without having to look away quickly. I can't study it intently because it's way too bright. So we couldn't possibly understand how glorious heaven is, how glorious God is. But my friends, one day we shall. You know, that's why I don't begrudge those that have passed on. I mourn for myself, but I sure wouldn't ask them to return to this veiled experience because what I long to see one day, they are able to behold it in all of its fullness. John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I will that those whom thou hast given me would be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. One day you're going to see him face to face. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then what? Face to face. 1 John 3, 2 says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, just as you, I can't understand and fully fathom Ezekiel chapter 1, I sure don't fully comprehend what heaven will be like. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but when he shall appear, we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And I want to tell you just one view of your Savior will more than compensate for all of the troubles and trials you've had down here. Now, I've seen him from time to time in the gospel. Have you? When the gospel is preached... We see, I've seen him by faith. And I've, I've seen the light. You ever seen the light? You ever come into the house of God with your mind darkened because of burdens and the sins of this world? And as you've heard the gospel preached, suddenly it's like the light has turned on in your mind. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with open face, in contrast to Moses who had to veil his face, we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, in the gospel, in, a, in the mirror of the gospel, we see the glory of the Lord. We are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The more we look at Christ, the more we're changed and transformed into His image. I've also seen His face in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, 
He says, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts, watch this, to give the light, what is glory? It's light, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus look like? You see, I've seen, I saw a picture of him one time. He had long flowing red hair. He was a Jew. You ever seen a Jew with long flowing red hair? He was a Jew. What did he look like? My friends, he didn't look like what the Renaissance artists say he looked like. That effeminate, kind of soft-skinned, you know, milk-toast kind of character. I believe Jesus looked like any other rugged Jewish man. He was a carpenter. I mean, he had dirt under his fingernails at times. He worked hard. He had muscles from swinging the hammer, busting rocks, laying stone, fabricating buildings. He, he, was, he was just like us. He didn't have a halo around his head. In every respect, he was human. But my friends, when the disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration, suddenly bursting through the veil of his humanity, they saw him transfigured before him, and his raiment became white and glistering, sparkling. His glory shined through. They got a preview of coming attractions. My friends, today, he is now glorified. And one day I will look upon his face and I won't have to look away and say it's burning my eyes. It won't incinerate me. I'll be able to sustain it because I will be glorified too. And I'll never get tired of gazing upon the brightness of God's glory, Jesus Christ. Let's turn the diamond and see Him as the Creator, as the covenant agent who will inherit the results of all of His finished work. And let's see Him as God of very God. You say, I wish I could see Him, Brother Mike. You can when the Gospel's preached. And I hope you've seen Him this morning with your spiritual eyes, the eye of faith. And one day you'll see Him with these eyes. And what a sight to behold that will be. You won't worry anymore that you never got to see Niagara Falls. You say, I've always wanted to see the Eiffel Tower, but I never got to go to Paris. That won't, you won't be disappointed when you get to heaven. You say, I always wanted to see Hawaii, but we never had the money. Well, join the club. I'm telling you, just one glimpse of him in glory will all the toils of life repay. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing.